Welcome to Cinema Duel, a podcast where my friend Chris and myself, John, talk about a couple of movies around a theme of our choosing. Chris, how are you this fine evening? John, it is Friday evening. I have a drink in hand. The weekend has just begun, so I'm doing pretty good. How about yourself? I am doing fantastic. At the time of this recording, uh, I have... uh, uncut gems in my netflix queue and the second season of star trek discovery uh on dvd from my library to go uh so at the the time i'm recording this uh i'm excited to watch them and then by the time this comes out i will be happy to say that my opinion on both of them was really intense and fairly uneven if ultimately satisfying Yeah, so, uh, yeah, no, life is good, uh, and except for the parts where it's terrible, and that leads me to the theme that I wanted to talk about today. Uh, before we get to my spiel about this, Chris, what's your history with Star Trek? Star Trek, so um, it is probably not nearly as extensive as yours, because we talked about when we were discussing you know, what do you want to do for the next episode? We kind of settled on, hey, John, you know what? Let's pick something that is uh, near and dear to your heart. Uh, for me, um, I have always been kind of a, let's say, a peripheral fan of Star Trek. Um, I was first exposed with the original series. Uh, it was a show that my dad loved. It was on syndication all the time when I was a kid growing up. Um, the first movie... I actually saw was probably um, the one that you picked. So I'll kind of leave everyone in suspense for that. Um, Wasn't a huge fan of the rest of the shows. I watched the next generation and deep space nine kind of periodically. They were on when I was in high school and in college kept in touch with most of the movies, loved the reboots um, for what they were. Uh, But uh, it held a weird place in my heart next to star wars which to me was much more fantasy this is obviously a much more science fiction and we'll we'll certainly talk about those differences when we talk about the two films we picked in the series but uh um it's always been kind of the cold at least up until these viewings which we'll talk about it's always kind of been the cold kind of distant cousin to the type of science fiction that i grew up loving mainly in um in uh book form so uh i like it um, I'm not like a Trekkie. I, I, I would never admit to being so, but I can definitely say after kind of going through this, um, my feelings have changed somewhat. So I'm looking forward to discussing that more importantly though, in all of that, tell us about your very, uh, intense relationship with this show. I know you're a huge fan, so have at it. Well, this is, uh, I'm glad you set me up that way because for me, s- s- there is there's there it's weird to think that like when like 20 30 years ago it was a big debate around like star wars versus star trek you were either a star trek fan or you're a star wars fan uh in fact i could distinctly there was it wasn't a regular thing um uh but there was one night that i vividly remember as a kid where my parents and i stayed up until ungodly late hours and none of us are late people at this time in our lives but for some reason we decided that would be a good time to stay up until like 11:30 at night arguing between star wars and star wars the merits of each one and my parents and my little brother were on team star trek and i was basically the lone holdout for star wars um <clears throat> but the but truthfully like both have always 
both, I mean, A, both are great. B, both have always been a big, uh, a big part of my life. And specifically the original six movies, uh, motion picture through undiscovered country, those, uh, well, a certain subsection of those movies anyway, movies that were just part of the movies that my parents had taped off of TV. And so movies like that, along with the Star Wars movies and like some other random stuff, whatever they had taped off of TV that one time, those were the movies that I would watch regularly and develop weird obsessions with. I don't know anyone else that like knows or cares about Condor Man, for example, but uh, I've watched that movie hundreds of times. Um, and so Star Trek forms, uh, if, if, if I was a avowed Star Wars fan um, and the hundreds of books that I and cards that I had uh, to prove it, uh, Star Wars or Star Trek sort of was just as present, just perhaps less vocally so. And while certainly there's like critiques to be had about various things about Star Trek over the years, um, even to like to the current day, um, <laughs> it feels at this point that like all of the hot takes and all of the like opinion energy that people have these days seem to be mostly largely wrapped around uh, Star Wars. Although now with the Picard show coming back, some of that's coming back to Star Wars, but I felt like I wanted to, when we were talking about movies that I wanted to have as like my uh, comfort zone, comfort food, I feel way less complicated about Star Trek these days uh, than I do about Star Wars. So I thought that this would be a nice relax. Well, it should be a nice relaxing episode for us to just sort of uh, dive in, have some fun. Uh, yeah, our picks are the, the theme specific sub theme we wanted to go for was the, the first six movies with the original cast. Yes. Uh, most of them show up in the generations movie, but that is uh, mostly a TNG movie. And um I feel like no one's really talking about those those movies anymore. And I think that there's like cool shit in them that uh, is in the grander context of what Star Trek has been and is currently. Some of the stuff is just wild. So, yeah. Just to pick up on something you said earlier around the picking sides, it's interesting to me watching the movies now, 30 or 40 years on in some cases, um, the, the, the conversation around, are you a Star Wars guy? Are you a Star Trek guy? This has been going on forever, even before the onset of social media. You know, I, I remember being in school and, and having those conversations. I'm sure the same thing happened back in the early 70s where it was, you know, are you a Beatles person or are you a Rolling Stones person? And what's, what's so funny is watching it now, they're so fundamentally different in what they try to do. Um you know, each each franchise to, to varying degrees of success that, of, of course, there's no reason to ever have to pick sides, but particularly with Star Trek and, and Star Wars, I mean, there is a fundamental difference in what is happening in these m- movies. And if anything, um, watching, we each picked one movie, but I wound up watching the first four movies again. Um, actually, one of those movies uh, I watched for the very first time, uh, I had never seen it. Watching these all again, kind of in order, it's it really elevated my um, opinion of the films and just kind of what Star Trek in general has always tried to do. So, um, without further ado, uh, I'll I'll start talking. Why don't we get into the 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 stuff we picked and just start taking it away.
Chris, you have our first pick for the night, so why don't you get us started? Yeah, so I picked, um, if I, if we're going to start somewhere, let's start at the very beginning. So my pick was Star Trek, the motion picture. A little bit of background for me. Um, this is probably, with the exception of Star Trek Three: The Search for Spock, which I had never seen prior to just kind of watching it um, in, in sequence for the podcast. Uh, motion picture is probably the film that I have, that I am the least familiar with. I think I saw it once back in the eighties when I was a kid. Um, it didn't do much for me. I know it doesn't do a lot for a lot of people. It tends to be kind of the most boring one of the bunch. Um, what was interesting about it though, coming into it this time was just how much, um, even though we're not going to talk about it, um, there's so much that this tries to set up and do. And the thing that really drew me about the film was it's kind of a rough start to a reboot. Um, so much so that the thing that surprised me the most about the motion picture was not the motion picture, but how much Star Trek II, The Wrath of Khan, really kind of reboots the motion picture in a way. Um, you actually don't need Star Trek the motion picture at all to kind of go through the series. Everything that the motion picture does, the Wrath of Khan does as well and does it better and does it in a more economical fashion and with more excitement and more of a narrative pulse. That being said, um, there's, there is some really interesting stuff to talk about with the motion picture. So real quick, just to kind of give a little context and a little bit of plot history, um, 1979, uh, certainly in reaction to the success of a certain little film called Star Wars in 77, um, Star Trek had already started its plans to come out of retirement, but as a TV show. And there was going to be a new show called Star Trek Phase 2. That kind of got jettisoned and over the script after script after script, they finally blew it up to a motion picture. They got the amazing um, Robert Wise to direct it based on a story by Alan Dean Foster, who um, I know more than anything else as the master of so many novelizations of the 80s. Um, and it's an interesting premise. It's it's essentially um, opens and there's this kind of nebulous field out in the galaxy. Uh, these Klingon ships are going to investigate it. And as they try to investigate it, it basically disintegrates them. Um and what we find out is this 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 nebulous kind of um, thing is slowly heading toward Earth. A power station kind of gets hit hit by it, and then essentially because the Enterprise is the closest ship to it, um, the crew gets back into action. Um, in some cases, kind of coming out of the coming out of their hermitage existence, hermetic existence. Um, uh, to a, to find out what this thing is and and stop it from um, destroying Earth and the Federation as we know it. You can't get much more simple than that. It's essentially a expanded version of an original series episode. Um, but even that being said, you, you know, as we get into the plot and you find out what this thing is and what they have to do to solve it, um, to 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 kind of solve the riddle of stopping it from impending destruction it it really feels fresh in that this is not a movie nor has the series ever really been 
um, about fighting or about laser blasts or about dog fights. This is really about discovering new things and um, grappling with some kind of philosophical conundrums um, in a way that is interesting. That being said, I don't think this movie is a huge success. Um, I certainly have some problems with it. Um, I do feel that The Wrath of Khan uh, fixes everything that the motion picture kind of bungles a bit and makes for a tighter reintroduction to the show. Uh, but that being said, what did you think of the film just kind of in, in general, John, particularly with the tone? which is something that I have a little bit of a problem. So where are you with this movie? Well, I, uh, not to turn this into John's personal therapy hour, um, the Star Trek's one and five were two movies that uh, I was told rather vehemently by my uh, very nerd parents that uh, those were the bad Star Treks. And so because they had access over uh, control over what movies I had access to. They hated those movies. And so I didn't see them basically until I was an adult. And the first time I, and, and Star Trek five is horseshit. It, it like they're hundred, like they're bang on on that one. But when I saw <laughs> motion picture, I was like, this is so different. This is so weird. Like, I don't even necessarily think of it. At, like, I think, I think you and I probably have similar takes on the movie, which is that it's very interesting. It's very unique in terms of how it fits into Star Trek past and future, um, even if it's ultimately not successful. Um, I think that the the production, uh, the, the design of the movie uh, looks very much in line with the science fiction of the seventies that's coming out at that time. And all like the original series was sixties. So that it like, it looks heads and tails better than the original series ever did. Um, yeah. And but it, to your point, it is very heavily indebted to the seventies. Yeah. Like we're at the time we're recording this, we just finished a month of the criterion channel, uh, doing a big, huge collection of seventies movies and, motion picture just slot i mean it wasn't on there but i watched at the same time and i was like this fits entirely within that uh zone and you're right like you mentioned the wrath of khan after it's done will basically reset everything as far as star trek goes so there's one star trek piece of star trek that is in all of the decades worth of star trek which is the motion picture that captures that vibe that aesthetic um like hell if you look at the backdrop of vulcan when they go get spock it looks like a damn high on fire cover like yeah that's it it just looks awesome i was like i don't this doesn't really have much of a plot and i hate some of the characters but god damn is beautiful to look at and the 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 plot i i, I can't tell if the plot like people didn't like the one of the things people complain about with the motion picture is the plot is really light. Like it does feel like they try to stretch an hour long TV episode into a full length movie and didn't fill it in with anything. But there's moments, a lot of like moments that almost border on like contemplative where it's just like, you're just watching beautiful imagery on the screen and just sort of soaking in it almost to the point that I'd almost make comparisons to like 2001 or something. Yeah. Well, that's interesting because there are, <laughs> there's an argument to be made that some of the sections are so nice to look at that they got reused 
in the Wrath of Khan and in Star Trek Three: The Search for Spock. Literally, entire sequences were lifted and put into the future movies so that they could save on budget. But to that point, though, one of the things that I remember crystal clear as a kid watching the motion picture, two things in particular that you can say whatever you want about how hokey or about how kind of dry and um, just kind of drawn out this film is. The Jerry Goldsmith score is unbelievable and is on par with... There are themes um, in my head that will always be immortal. Star Wars, obviously. um, uh, Indiana Jones. um, But let's let's get away from him for a second. The Superman theme and then the Star Trek theme. Um, uh, This is where you first hear so many of those iconic scores from Jerry Goldsmith. And when you couple Jerry Goldsmith's score... With that scene where Kirk and Scotty are coming to the Enterprise for the first time and they're in the little shuttle. And it's 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 one of the most amazing things I've still ever seen, uh, just kind of firing the imagination. We're, we're so used to Star Trek, uh, Star Wars rather, where, you know, the ships are in hangars and the hangars are inside the Death Star or they're here or they're in like these bunkers that are obviously sets. And Star Trek goes, you know, spaceships are so freaking huge. We're not going to build hangars for them. They're just going to sit in space and we'll have these kind of constructs around them to kind of, you know, keep them tethered and and allow us to kind of fix and repair before they launch out. And that sequence, when they're just in the shuttle and the scope of them approaching the Enterprise and seeing people working and there's a construction guy. This is where I first noticed because I watched one, two, three, basically in two days. It's a scene where the shuttle's going through and there's a there's a construction astronaut on a girder and he's he, looks up, he looks up and he waves <laughs> and the exact same sequence is in the Wrath of Khan. And then they Only take, it's like a tenth of the length. The one in motion tenth, picture yeah. goes on forever. And that's what makes it so beautiful. You you take that beautiful imagery, you take that and that's a that's a patented Robert Wise move to just take this thing and just kinda just luxury in it and you put it with that jerry goldsmith score and it's gorgeous um and even the scene where they get into the enterprise and you talk about that 70s aesthetic um there are some places where it doesn't work and one one of the places where it really doesn't work in this film is the costumes the costumes are absolutely horrendous but the set design when they go into the like into the, the docking bay and Kirk steps out and he just looks out and he sees all these people working and he sees, you know, like things moving in and out. And he gets to the bridge for the first time and the bridge is under construction, which is hilarious because the bridge was the unused bridge set from the phase two TV show. And But they see like people on the ceiling and they're pulling out wiring and trying to make it work. Um, it has such a beautiful, if dated look to it, that there are just certain sections of this thing that are gorgeous to look at. The... That that trope of the retrofitted Enterprise, um, <clears throat> with everything sort of like half falling apart, uh, new people and sort of nothing works quite the way it used to. I was surprised at because I also watched one through four and I've also seen five and six and it's just blows my mind how often they go to the well of, man, the Enterprise has got a new crew and it's barely functioning. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, it's the. I I think that like and you talked about like stuff that gets reused. I think my other big take when it comes to uh, the motion picture is, uh, aside from the fact that it is like the most expensive 
for its time Star Trek movie, not counting the reboots or anything. But um, the the my other big take for for motion picture is that it was so hated. It seems to have been so hated and so forgotten that they have basically salvaged this movie for parts. Everything from the shots that you mentioned to the score, like the open, the well, not counting the over the overture at the beginning, which I thought was actually really classy and cool. But the like the opening theme, um, they just straight up steal for next generation. I didn't know until I was a grown up that the next generation yeah. theme was actually the theme for motion picture, and I'd be willing to bet that most people didn't or of a certain age at least would also have not put that together either right the and it's not just the not just the themes or the the specific shots uh it's also like because this movie came out of the phase two uh planned tv show which didn't happen a lot of those phase two scripts actually ended up making their way into next generation and so the dynamic between decker and Ilya is that her name Yes. Yeah, Decker and Ilya. That rep, that relationship dynamic actually gets reused for Riker and Troy in TNG, um, and so a lot of the early stuff of setting them up as like former lovers, and she's got some you know special powers and stuff. That like there's a lot of uh, there, there's tweaks to it, obviously, and TNG uses it to much better effect, uh, in my opinion. But they that that starts from them just being like, no one's gonna notice if we just like straight up steal this stuff for TNG, and sure enough, no one has or no one no one liked that movie enough to care. So I had I had no idea that that's how they reused it, but it it, it gives us the opportunity to bring up one of my issues with the the movie, um, and it's around Decker, who I actually like. So. The real kind of the the two new people in the film, even though they're only in it for the one film, is um, Stephen Collins, who most people will know from a lot of things, but maybe Seventh Heaven is his biggest thing, um, is Willard Decker. So he's the he's the new captain of the Enterprise who gets kind of um, demoted down to executive officer because Kirk basically um, he he he's an admiral. He no longer has command of a ship. He yearns to command a ship, so when this crisis occurs, he convinces Starfleet to give him command of the Enterprise because he's the only man who can solve the problem. That is, that's kind of one of my issues with the film is that the characterization of Kirk is terrible in this movie. Yeah. <laughs> and what's funny is they let they let him be a dick, thinking that his personality will kind of carry it through. Um, Stephen Collins as Decker is actually right most of the time. And when we talk about the end of the movie, he's actually the one who saves everyone. It, yes, I agree that like I I think I don't like Decker as much, but I definitely had in my notes like Decker's making some good points here. And yet the because the movie and the franchise rests at this point on uh, on the crew that, you know, it, it I feel like it I mean, there's there's no new there's no like new crew members you have to, well i guess there's savik in wrath of khan but i feel like she slots into that crew nicely i feel like if you you might have had to come up with some new plot and this movie's already low on plot but i feel like the way that decker is often positioned as being the guy who's right but he's the new guy so fuck him uh yeah pretty much <laughs> like i i think that's the one of the biggest struggles of the actual plot of the movie is that like you just want to be with the main crew, even though the other per they're acting terribly and people are calling them out on it. 
Yeah, it's such a weird thing. I, and I think that's the that's the thing that and this is not to knock Shatner. I know a lot of people give him grief as an actor, but um, he there's something off about his performance here. It, there there's not that there's not the warm congeniality that is present literally in the next film when you get to Star Trek II, Wrath of Khan um he, he the the camaraderie he has with the rest of, of of the crew the way that he works with everyone else and then um when you get to um it, it, his son and his lover and then three and when we talk about four a little bit later uh, he, he is settled into kind of the new version of Kirk that we all kind of know and love. But here it's not fully formed and it plays really off throughout the entire movie. And it's the one thing beyond how terrible the costumes are. Uh, it, it's the one thing that kept throwing me off time and time again on this movie, which just makes me feel that much stronger about if someone was new to Star Trek the movies like they have a passing familiarity with the series start with star trek 2 because it literally does everything that the motion picture does star trek 2 is all about um kirk he doesn't have command of a starship again even though at the end of this one he sails off onto new frontiers and it's about him getting into the ship and 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 re-teaming with the crew again and it it it, it does again everything in a much more economical and and narrative rich fashion that this movie kind of fails to do it feels like this is a trial run despite the fact that it has some pretty lofty ideas and when you get to kind of the kicker of the climax as to hey what's going on with this nebulous cloud what is it it's this thing that we call viger it's the only thing that they know about it and when they actually penetrate the nebulous cloud and find out what viger is i mean that's kind of a kick-ass cool star trek concept but the fact that Kirk is a dick almost the entire runtime of this film kind of ruins it a little bit for me. And and I think adjacent to that the reintro- the way that they bring Spock back into the story is actually like awkward almost to the point of upsetting because Spock Yes. because Spock is on Vulcan sort of seemingly out of the Starfleet game uh but he has some kind of sense or premonition or whatever you want to call it of the cloud. Um, and so he starts making his way back and they have, uh, meanwhile, the enterprise crew has a new science officer who for reasons of plot necessity, uh, explodes in a transporter accident (laughs) (laughs) and who should show up, but Spock to take his place. I was like, that is actually upsetting. Like that, like you could just yeah. have Spock be on the ship. No one would mind. You don't have to like kill the science officer. And that's another sequence where it just reinforces how much of a dick Kirk is in this film. It it, it literally doesn't make sense because in that sequence, they pass by and they start to hear that there's the problem with the um, transporter and um, Kirk literally jumps in, shoves the woman out of the way to try and solve it. I'm like, at this point, anyone watching the film is going to be like, dude, what are you going to do? There's not, there's no lever you can slide to fix this. You sh- there's no reason for you to have jumped in. Th- th- this really at times feels a lot like, let's just cater to Shatner because he's the most recognizable person in the cast beyond Spock. And we got to get Spock in there. So let's make this machination happen but it's just one more indicator as to how 
I, I get that everybody's trying to get their, their heart in, in the right place. And I'm the first person to say, I love Robert Wise as a director, but there are so many choices in this film that just don't work. Despite the fact that I still kind of like it. Uh, McCoy has that kick-ass seventies beard though, right? McCoy a- is, can, can we just take one moment? Cause I'm, I'm going to probably say this a lot. Uh, McCoy has forever been my favorite character in Star Trek. And uh, that beard is that beard is magnificent. I wish he had stayed in his original costume from the motion picture throughout. Everything. Yeah, I was gonna say I think McCoy's look throughout that movie actually really works great. And although it wouldn't work for anything else, I was just like I, that's that's a damn mood, is what that is. <laughs> DeForest Kelly, you are the MVP in my heart for every Star Trek film. Absolutely. Um, did you have any other? Uh, sort of final thoughts on a motion picture before we uh move on yeah so speaking of final thoughts let's talk about the the final piece of the movie and the climax because it is pretty interesting so this this thing this v'ger that is coming and is wreaking havoc wherever it goes it turns out that um v'ger is actually um voyager 6 um, a 20th century um, space probe. Um, and the way to beat it is to, again, not to destroy it, but to interface with it and to help it complete its mission, help it to understand what's happening. And um, it's a really weird kind of visually oddball climax to a film. And again, despite my misgivings with the motion picture, I kind of love it for that. And at, and again, what winds up happening is Decker saves the day. Stephen Collins steps in, um, him and Ilya. So Ilya at this point had been taken by V'ger and replaced with a with a kind of a synthetic um, probe version of her, which is is seeking to understand the humans on board the Enterprise. They get into the nebula. They they find this ship. They find that V'ger is actually Voyager Six. And it can't complete its mission. And the only way to kind of save the universe is to help this thing complete its mission. And they do so by sacrificing the lives of Ilya and Decker, allowing them to kind of interface with Voyager and become one. And let me tell you, say what you want about how kind of dated the movie looks, how meandering the plot takes you. Um, Star Wars is never going to have an ending like that where you know, this thing that is destroying the universe, let's sacrifice ourselves to integrate with it in a, in a, in a gesture of peace and understanding, which has always kind of been the concept that Roddenberry had been pushing for the series, you know, throughout. Um, it's, it's kind of beautiful in its way, even though it is clunky and misshapen and full of, uh, you know, like a roided out Dick <laughs> Kirk. Uh, I kind of love it for that. Yeah, I, I, I agree. I think that the difference between motion picture and Final Frontier is that Final Frontier is hot garbage, and the motion picture is a compelling, if deeply flawed, movie. Like, like I would ten times out of ten, I'd rather watch motion picture. It is oh yeah. It's super interesting and it's fascinating and compelling in so many ways. And also there's par- a lot of parts of it that are bad, but like it's uh as far as 
bringing you know star trek back into the public consciousness it sort of exists it stands alone like unique sometimes unique can be used as a word to signify like like unparalleled quantity or quality um but i think it's not even a case of saying that it's the ultimate best thing it's just there's nothing like it yeah really yeah so yeah i mean those are really my final thoughts it's a flawed film it's a meandering film uh but it's still ultimately kind of a beautiful film despite all of its faults it, it's not something that i'm probably going to go back to a lot but that's not to say there's not value to be found in here um william shatner um aside and don't worry because he more than makes up for it in every subsequent film but in this one you know take it with uh take it with the grain of salt that's there but still a fun movie to check out and on that note you double dumbass let's move on to our next movie (laughs) (laughs) you went there you went there John, so the next pick is yours. What do you got? Uh, my pick. Uh, as if I don't know. As if you don't know. And as if my, uh, well, it depends on if you if you caught the double dumbass, you know that I'm not just being cruel to Chris, but that was actually a clue uh, to our movie, second movie of the night, which is Star Trek IV The Voyage Home, released in 1986 and directed by Mr. Spock himself, Leonard Nimoy. Um, this, okay. After the motion picture comes out uh, and is roundly like criticized and rejected by the fan base, we've talked in that in that segment about how the Wrath of Khan more or less jettisons that movie, resets the board, and does Star Trek like perfectly and economically, like budget wise and lengthwise. Like the Wrath of Khan is a perfect movie, um, and it leaves a rather notable uh, plot. Uh, development at the end which the third movie search for spock uh is largely obsessed with finding um and that do we have to do we have to dance around that plot hole this point i mean we're talking easily right 20 30 years ago you know what okay let's let's do it spoiler alert wrath of khan ends with spock dying and uh, the search, Star Trek Three: The Search for Spock is all about the remaining uh, member, the remaining original crew banding together, stealing the Enterprise, uh, which is set to be decommissioned. And they steal it. They basically go to where his body was buried on the Genesis planet uh, after he died, and uh, they go and try and rescue him because he's maybe not as it's complicated, but he's not as dead. Uh, at this point as he was when they left him. So uh, the movie Star Trek three ends with, or well, partway through the movie, the enterprise blows up, which is probably the only effective moment in that whole movie. Um, But the Star Trek three ends with the 
crew members having a stolen Klingon bird of prey, uh, taking uh, Spock back to Vulcan so he can sort of rehabilitate and reintegrate and sort of like recover from his being dead. Um, and that's sort of where Star Trek Four picks up is he uh star trek 4 picks up with them on vulcan about to leave and sort of go home to atone for all of the crimes they did uh and it creates this sort of like interesting sort of trilogy of films two three and four where they all sort of stand alone and work as their own films but like those the consequences at the end of them sort of actually profoundly impact the next film after um and it kind of doesn't really carry on after that. Star Trek VI, The Undiscovered Country, will reference back to Kirk's dead son, who dies in three. Um, but uh, two, three, and four sort of form this weird sort of miniature trilogy within the larger series. And four is the last one and is, I mean, I'm going to describe all the things that happen in it. But it to put it short, it is insane and what's more that it's insane is that it's like damn amazing um because if because if you think about it this movie is about first it's about time uh first of all it's an environmental movie this is an ecological disaster of a movie like that is it the 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 earth is uh in trouble it is going everyone's going to die on earth and it's because of an ecological problem. It is also a movie about time travel. Um, And then also, it is a fish out of water 80s comedy. (laughs) You put those things back to back and you're like, what the hell is this movie? And there is no reason why this should work. There is no reason why it should work. And yet you watch it and you're like, huh, I enjoyed every minute of that, and I'm grinning ear to ear. Uh, I think you could put Wrath of Khan and Undiscovered Country as being like, well, depending on how I'm feeling, I could go either way, but either of those two movies as like pers- like the quintessential Star Trek movies, and they're like they're perfect. There's nothing left to it. But like Star Trek Four is just delightful, and it's great and memorable, and I could quote almost all of the dialogue verbatim and have a blast doing it. This was a mainstay on cable television throughout the eighties and early nineties. So I have seen, I may not have seen the entire movie a lot of times, but I have seen it at least two or three. And then just as far as familiarity, um, I watched it again in its entirety about eight hours ago. Um, And if I was quiet during your description, it is because I have, at least at that point, nothing to add. I am entirely 100% in agreement with you on everything you've said regarding this wonderful, wonderful, incredibly weird non-Star Trek Star Trek movie. <laughs> yeah, because and and the and the and when you were talking about the ending of motion picture being about something has come to some sort of like seemingly foreign alien whatever you want to call it being has come to earth to communicate with uh to communicate with someone or something in earth and the 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 goal is the challenge is how do we communicate with this thing and it has to do with and the and the solution is based in something going on in 20th century earth actually sort of 
gives those two movies a nice parallel in their conclusion. Absolutely. Um, but what what's interesting here, though, is that um, unlike the first movie, the real difference here, and you, you keyed on it with the environmental piece, um, unsubtle as it is, what not a lot of people pick up on with the threat, the threat is entirely our fault. And that gets a little bit glossed over in the movie, but but Nimoy makes it pretty clear. Nimoy was a huge proponent for what happens in this movie. He has a story credit on this. And the the beauty of the film is it, it, it does so closely mirror motion picture in that there's an alien probe. And for huge fans of science fiction, if you look at the probe, the probe was actually modeled after the probe on the cover of Arthur C. Clarke's uh, Rendezvous with, with Rama. There, there is a, there is a um, very telling nod to that, um, very specific and knowing nod to that. But this, this probe is coming and it, it's threatening destruction of the earth. But what they find out and what kind of kickstarts the film is that it's their fault that this is going to happen. It is because of our... Uh, not caring about the environment that that this disaster is now going to come upon us and that that makes this movie just that much more special and kind of brilliant that a star trek movie takes up something like that and manages to make it ridiculously fun and entertaining yeah so i guess it probably is helpful for us to like actually go through because like if there's a criticism of I think we could talk about motion picture largely without discussing like the fine details of the plot. Cause there's not a lot there. Um, uh, but I think with motion with, with voyage home, I think we're going to have to do a little bit of uh, plot description here, but I'll try and keep it brief, uh, which is that the, the crew of the former enterprise are heading home to face uh, their trial for various crimes committed in other movies. And uh, a, this this probe, which you you mentioned more accurately, my description of the probe was just it looks like a cigarette or like a cigar, um, but is headed to Earth and it starts sending this signal directed at Earth's oceans and it's causing all kinds of environmental catastrophes and everyone's freaking out because like what the hell is this doing? What does it want? Why is it doing it this to us? And as and like all of the the space dock, all the spaceships, they're all just being ter- drained of their power. They can't do anything. Earth is defenseless. And uh, the bird of prey, as they're heading home, they hear the emergency signals. They're listening to the signal of this probe. And through Spock's uh, smart uh, you know, brain, he figures out that the, what the probe is trying to do is it's sending the signal to Earth's oceans to try and communicate with humpback whales. And in this timeline humpback whales have been hunted to extinction and so there's no response and so it's trying to figure out why is there no response like why are the humpback whales not talking to me and because it's uh this signal is very destructive otherwise um there's no way to stop it and so their solution is they're going to travel back in time by slingshotting around the sun which (laughs) they even joke that it's a trope at this point it's like yeah we've done this before so let me ask you about that quick, since you brought it up, because um, you're more of the Star Trek guy than I am. Had they done it before, or was that just like a knowing joke about how silly the concept is, so let's just talk our way around it real quick and just get to the meat of the movie? You know what's fun about that is that it could be either, and I actually don't know, because the, the original, because <laughs> I didn't talk about this in my intro, but I my Star Trek as a kid was the movie's 
TNG and DS9. I actually didn't really watch the original series. Oh, I've watched okay. the movies a ton, but I actually have only seen a handful of episodes from the original series. I do think that there is time travel stuff there. So I'm I'm confident that that is, in fact, uh, a, a reference to a thing that they've done before. But I do okay. also like that they're just like, it's time travel. Who cares? Um, and so they're going to go back in time to when they believe there were humpback whales on Earth and then steal the humpback whales and then uh, come back, drop them off in the ocean so that they can respond to the probe's uh, message and then stop Earth from dying. And so when they get there, they basically find themselves as Star Trek people in 1986 San Francisco. And so <laughs> this is where the movie transforms from ecological disaster time travel movie into straight up comedy. <laughs> I, and, and the thing that I think is wild about it because I've seen this movie so many times is how much of the how much of the memorable lines from this movie how much of the the jokes all that stuff is compressed into like a three minute montage almost of people just not the crew not knowing how to behave because they're advanced spacefaring types and they don't know how life uh in our time is uh, goes I'm looking for the nuclear vessels <laughs> I did okay so I as an adult now, I can recognize that the peril of Chekhov, a Russian man, asking an American police officer where to find nuclear vessels it's is, brilliant. is the worst possible thing. But as a kid, I was like, yeah, he just doesn't know what's going on. It's fine. Like, I didn't, I didn't get that there was a political angle to that. <laughs> but so they split up the crew into uh, Hura and Chekhov are going to go try and find... Uh, basic try and convert some uh radioactive material from uh the naval base to sort of repower their ship which has lost its power uh kirk and they have to replenish the dilithium crystals that's correct uh nerd check (laughs) (laughs) uh kirk and spock are going to track down the whales and then i think it's mccoy and scotty are going to try and build a tank for the whales inside their ship because uh klingon birds of prey are not exactly designed for transporting giant uh whales and then i think i think i think the character that actually gets the most sort of left out of the whole thing is sulu he just goes off to find a helicopter that's 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 largely what he gets to do yeah sulu and uhura get a little bit of the short shrift but what this movie does really wisely is by breaking them up it gives them the opportunity to have their little episodes that sketch out their characters a lot better. And, and it just, it, 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 it's just wonderful. This is a star Wars movie that largely succeeds not because of its ideas, although the ideas are pretty interesting, but because at, at this point we've known these characters for so long. Um, Nimoy understands that what we really want to do is just spend time with these guys and and let them riff and let them act like the family that they've become. So each section is just a wonderful opportunity for comedy, for fish out of water kind of theatrics, but also just for the crew to really shine where they can. It's hilarious. And, And what really works about it more than anything else is that despite all that comedy and despite everything else it, it, it is kind of bluntly and desperately trying to say something and a lot of people at the time and i've I, i've heard this since when just kind of reading re- reviews on it is hey you know the voyage home is really kind of on the nose about its environmental message but 
the argument that I might make is, you know, we're at a stage, especially now watching this in 2020, where subtlety doesn't really work. So I have to imagine that was probably the case in 1986, to your point with uh, Chekhov. Um, and, and Chekhov, to me, is a linchpin in this film. One of the things that I really love is how he and Uhura are, are trying to um, get the stuff to uh, replace the dilithium crystals or re-energize the dilithium crystals so that the ship can take off again. And Uhura takes the stuff that she needs and she gets beamed up. Um, Chekhov doesn't get beamed up. He has to make a break for it. He falls, he gets hurt, which sets up a wonderful kind of Keystone Cops comedy section where <laughs> basically Spock and Kirk have to, uh, Bones and Kirk have to dress up as surgeons, break into a hospital and rescue Chekhov. Um, to get them back to the ship so they can, they can escape. And one of the wonderful things, this is where Shatner really shines in this movie, as opposed to the motion picture, is when he grabs Chekhov and they save him. And we're going to just gloss over the fact, because I, I can't spend any, any more time on how magnificent DeForest Kelly is, but the whole hospital sequence... It's just glorious. A, it's glorious. There is a section where there's an old woman <laughs> that he stops and says, what's the matter with you? And she's going for dialysis. <laughs> he just basically, uh, and this is a personal point for me, ha only having one kidney. Uh, he just looks at her and goes, dialysis, primitives, take this pill and call me if you have any problems. As they're escaping the hospital, there's a callback to the joke because the old woman's being wheeled out and she goes, that man gave me a pill and I grew a new kidney. And it is hilarious. So the real interesting thing about the hospital piece is when they rescue Chekhov, Kirk is constantly calling him Pavel uh, as opposed to Chekhov. And folks, if this doesn't sync properly, my computer has shut down three times. I had to restart recording again, so I apologize. But I just wanted to just really get across that. It's at this point that we're not looking at Star Trek as a crew anymore. We're really seeing them as a family. And it's just, it, it, it's just, it, it, it brings this film home in a way that none of the others quite do because they're so busy with the plot and mechanics of what has to happen to get from point A to B. The great thing about Voyage Home is it's so easy to get from A to B in the plot because it's just basically get the humpback whales and bring them home that you're left to be able to really focus on the interactions between the crew and it makes this movie all the richer. Absolutely. And in that scene, in that, in that interaction between uh, Kirk and uh, Chekhov, he asks him when they, when they bring him out of his coma, uh, they ask him like name rank and he says uh, uh, name Chekhov uh, rank admiral. And of course he's not an admiral and it's, it's a, just a nice little, like immediately he's, he's cracking jokes coming back and yeah. to his boss, uh, who just saved his life from certain peril. So I, I, it, that was a really nice moment of just like, okay, we're fine. He, he made a joke. We can move on. Um, I, I mean, I, I think the, the, yeah, the interactions between everyone, like they, they, when they're talking about going back in time they kind of hand wave the time travel is no big deal, but it actually gets, they even like more pointedly thumb their nose at time travel in the 
Scotty and McCoy uh, sequences because yes. they have to go basically design a tank with technology that doesn't exist yet. And so they find someone who can do the stuff, but with more primitive technology. And they basically go up to him, pretend that there's some fancy university professor and say, we can give you the technology to build what we need. And you'll be light years ahead of the competition. And someone asks, or I think McCoy asks like, aren't we messing up the timeline if we go and give him this technology now? And he ends and Scotty's response is, well, how do we know he didn't invent it? (laughs) And then that's it. It doesn't come up again. Scotty is great in this film. He's usually the one that gets the shortest shrift because his job is to basically say, I don't know how much more she can take captain. Right. You know, basically that's all he does. He's on the ship and he might have, Spock aside, and I need you immediately afterwards to talk full on about Spock and how wonderful Spock is in this movie. But uh, that scene that you're referring to, when he's asked to use the computer to draft up the plans to make the aluminum transparent, <laughs> just the, the way that he, you interact with a computer in the 23rd century is not the way you interact with a computer in 1986. And it is gold the way that James Doohan kind of plays that whole scene out. Thank God they gave him something to do beyond sitting in the engineering section because he is glorious. And what I found out too, interesting, the same place uh, where I learned about the Rendezvous with with Rama reference, um, because I watched this on Amazon Prime, which has that silly trivia section. Um, James Doohan originally came up with the Klingon language. He was, when the, the first Klingon spoke in, I think it was the motion picture, he came up with um, the words for that. And then when they developed the Klingon language later and turned it into an actual language, they retroactively made sure that the stuff that James Doohan built for motion picture would work in the syntax. So uh, the dude should get a lot more kudos than he does for just being the engineering guy. Um, I did not know that. That's wild. He basically invented Klingon, but beyond that, he might have, I'll say the second most hilarious part in the film because the the, the most hilarious moments belong to to Spock. So um, <laughs> double damn it. <laughs> Let let's talk about how great Spock is in this job. So Spock being uh, recently brought back from the dead and sort of having his personality rebuilt from the ground up, he's sort of. He, I mean, his, his Spock's thing has always been that he's like half human, half Vulcan. And so he um, has both the logical side and the human emotional side um, that he sort of w- integrates and gets to uh, works together. But when they're rebuilding his personality after being brought back to life, he's pretty firmly on the like on the Vulcan side and is not uh, engaging in sort of any sort of. He's not engaging with his emotions at all. And so he's any any context he may have developed is for understanding human behavior is and the the sort of illogicalness of it uh is gone. And so uh what I really like about Spock in this movie is that like I think of more than anyone else he aside from the fact that he just has the pointy ears which they have to like hide um by like tying a a piece of cloth around his head. The, That's so brilliant. Yeah, no, it's great. And then they just say that he's like a burned out hippie. Like it's uh it's 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 beautiful. But Kirk sort of has to like be his guide 
through uh, 1986 San Francisco, which is just beautiful because Kirk himself is wrong about things just as often as he's right. Like he has way better handle on the situation than Spock does um, about how everything works. He's much more at home, but he does make a bunch of interesting like missteps. Like when he, when Kirk does attempt to like, he, he's, he's like, I know I have to swear a bunch, but he doesn't know how to swear. And so he's like <laughs> double dumb ass on you. Um, that and- might be, that might be the best part of the movie. It, in it, terms of comedy yeah it's it, he is just as cl- he, there he's only just like he's only just barely better at reading the situation than spock is and so spock uh a lot of times will be asking kirk questions about like how does this work like why are you speaking like this um like sort of questioning you know th- america of the time sort of poking at some of our assumed you know cultural expressions and stuff um i think one of my like it wasn't something that i ever consciously thought about but something that i always liked and then as i got older like got to really identify as being really important part a memorable part of the movie is the scene when they're on the bus which is uh kirk and spock um get on the bus to go try uh uh, to the uh, to the institute where the whales are, and there's this guy, uh, there's this there's this punk rock guy on the bus where who's blasting his uh, ghetto blaster at a full volume, and uh, <clears throat> they try and get him to stop, and he flips them off, and as a response, Box just neck pinches him, and he falls asleep, and it turns off, and everyone claps for him. That I always loved that song, um, and the in about 2016, uh, Wired put up a pretty in-depth uh, article. Uh, a guy yeah. named Brian Raffert, uh, Raftery uh, wrote it, sort of telling the story of that per that punk and that song, which I won't go into the full details of it, but it is actually pretty glorious. The short version is that this guy was hired to do a bunch of things on the movie and uh, worked closely with Leonard Nimoy, the director. And so when it came time to do the punk thing, he really wanted to do it because he had spent time in the punk scene and they were at the time saying, well, we'll just use like a Duran Duran song. And he was like, nah, it's gotta be something like dead Kennedys or something. And so he, the guy, not only like he, while he was waiting for Leonard Nimoy to give him the approval to play this like one scene part, he shaved his head into a Mohawk again, yep. got all the gear and recorded, it's been a couple nights recording a shitty hardcore punk song in the hallway of his apartment. Um, and that's the song that gets played in the thing. He's like, I'll just do this. And it's fucking awesome. Not only that, if you listen, the song is pretty fucking good. Yeah, the song is <laughs> it's good. A, it's a great, authentic kind of hardcore punk song from that time period. In a Star Trek movie. Jesus Christ. That is just... it. It Again, this movie is insane. Um I think it's something we haven't talked about yet. I think it's just it's just one of these weird things about the movie that is not 
planned, but just ends up in retrospect being funny. Um, motion picture had uh, Stephen Collins, who I uh, just briefly to note is a horrible human being um, and boo to him. Uh, but he was in Seventh Heaven and what uh, the Voyage Home has. That is their- literally all I know about him is that he was in Seventh Heaven. So, Oh, yeah. <laughs> You can Google it if you want. He's, I guess don't don't Wikipedia. Like, we're talking we're talking like Jeffrey Jones uh, levels. Oh oh person. oh goodness oh yeah. my goodness. Okay, yeah. I didn't. Um, but uh, the Voyage Home features as its sort of like romantic lead is Catherine Hicks, who plays uh, the wife in Seventh Heaven, and so oh. our t- yeah. So our two movies today feature both of the appearances of Seventh Heaven cast members. Sadly, if. <laughs> If there is a weak point in this movie, it is maybe Catherine Hicks then, because she was maybe the worst part of the movie for me. <laughs> you know, I the only thing she's I not didn't, terrible. Yeah, no, I I liked her, and I mean, and this is like this was always true even before I knew that Stephen Collins was a bad person. But uh, I always liked her in this movie more than I liked Decker in Motion Picture. Um, I think the thing I. The thing that I think it suffers from is the the expectation afterwards that like when so when they get the whales into the ship, they get the ship the the dilithium crystals powered up again and they're ready to go back to save the day. She like they have let by that point the crew have let uh Catherine Hicks who is the she is the t- caretaker of the whales. She is the one yes. who is protective of them. That's how they, she enters into the movie is that they have to and deal let's with be, her. Let's be actually a, l- a little bit more clear than that. She seems to have a slightly unhealthy relationship with these whales. It's very fiercely protective. Um, yes, it is. And in a way that I find like endearing and, and charming. Um, but essentially the, the whales are being taken away from her care and are being released into the wild where she expects that they'll be uh hunted immediately and when and in order for them to sort of get access actually get access to the whales the the crew have to sort of drop the pretense that they're not that they belong there and they they have to basically tell her the whole thing that like they're from the future they're here to take the whales they're going to be safe and they let her in but like obviously they're not going to take her back with them and as they're le- saying their final goodbyes, she surprises by jumping into the transporter beam and she's on the ship. So she's like, well, I have no life other than these whales. So I'm just going to go with you into the future. And when the movie resolves, she finds herself a post on uh, some random ship that's going to do science experiments or something. And yeah, and Kirk is kind of like, well... I never got your phone number to use a saying from your century. And she's like, well, f- you know, it's, we'll find each other. And I'm like, well, I do obvi- like that. So, oh, I was just going to say like, they obviously aren't like they never do. And, and no, but would- I do like that. They don't actually connect at the end. Like that. She's oh, just right. not the romantic interest for Kirk. It seems like they're setting that up, but then it just like, I do like that. They, they don't fully commit to it. I like that yeah. they give her a, you know, a much like she's like, I'm in the future. I want to see what's out there. I like that part of it. I just don't like the, like, I'll I'll come find you unless she's just straight up lying to him. Like, <laughs> I, I just, I as a kid, I Which always took it as, be. <laughs> as a kid, I always took that at face value. That like, no, she says she's gonna find them. So let okay, Star Trek Five, they get back together, um, and then they don't. So you know, 
maybe that's just me being naive, but uh, that was the only part of it of her arc that I didn't like. Because they need for this fish out of water stuff to work, they actually do need to have someone who can like Kirk tries to be the guide, but she is actually the person that can sort of navigate them through everything. No, and, and it, it does make sense that she goes back, right? Because if they have to ensure the survival of these whales, the whales have been extinct for 300 years that, you know, who knows how to take care of these whales or ensure that they're going to be fine. I like that she comes back. The nerd part of me gets kind of choked up when, to the point you mentioned, so they're about to leave. Kirk says his goodbyes. He starts to beam up. She jumps back. She jumps on him and says, surprise, and they beam up together. Now, I can't help but thinking, like, can you, again, I don't know the history. Can you do that on a transporter? Wouldn't their molecules then get intermingled? I mean, they, they didn't read for two people to jump back. They read for one. She jumped in on him. Wouldn't he then be like a him and her monstrosity when he beams back on the ship? How does I'll, that work? Like the uh, explosion in motion picture? <laughs> yeah, that, that, that's literally what I was thinking about because they have that moment on motion picture. Now we have this, but it's totally fine. I do have one critique of uh, Catherine Hicks's character's decision at the end. Your point about they need someone to help keep the whales survival and thriving and all that stuff that's a, that's 100 percent correct like they need someone to stay there with the whales and what does she do she gets on she the leaves. science leaves and she leaves <laughs> that well, was that was the that was the actual critique i had which is that okay she wants to she wants to leave her 20th century life and go into the future to say uh that makes sense uh and she wants to stay with the whales that's fine and the first thing she does is leave the whales so let me throw this at you just j just real quick. Um, so let's say that you were picked, you know, that you jumped on because you want to save the whales, but then you got to the future and the future is fucking awesome. <laughs> I would probably be like, you know what? Those whales are going to be perfectly fine. Is there fish? Is there plankton? I think the whales will be fine. I'm now going to go into outer space. So I totally understand just get a nanny cam. You'll be fine. Her decision to go ahead and be like, yeah, no, the whales will be fine. I'm going to keep going out and explore the edges of the galaxy. Yeah, I I guess uh, I guess you never know until you get there, right? <laughs> so in the end, can, can we probably both agree, um, at least as far as the original kind of set of films are, cons are, are concerned, I, I think as much as people talk about Rathacon because of how Ricardo Montalban and, and, and just the the conflict between him and Kirk, f for me, Voyage Home is where it's at. I there used to be uh, there used to be a thing about the even number Star Treks being the good ones. Yeah. And while I think it's more complicated than that and it doesn't really hold water like Two, four, and six are amazing movies, and well, and they are the, much better than one, three, and five. <laughs> yeah, no, for sure. Yeah, absolutely. The I, I, I mean, when I think it's more complicated, I mean that there's different degrees of like failure in one, three, and five. Um, but I, I think my preference for two between two, four, and six depends on what I'm in the mood for. Like oh. the. I think Wrath of Khan is a stone cold classic. Um, it's a perfect movie. I think Voyage Home is 
a fun and delightful movie with really low like it it has a message but it definitely couches it in some really low stakes and then uh movie didn't talk about much which is undiscovered country feels like like a it's a it's more of a romp it's more of an adventure um and it, it feels good as a closing to yeah. this series of films uh even if it's not like quite as tight it's a bit more upbeat and like uh but still like it's upbeat and fun and people having good times as they're sort of like giving it one last go so it really depends on like what you're in the mood for i guess yeah i'd agree uh with every episode we always do some uh movie recommendations do chris you want to go first yeah and this is going to kind of be a bit of a cheat so i apologize but as we uh i didn't actually prepare recommendations this month but i definitely have a recommendation and it's the one that i mentioned earlier um i really feel strongly that there's there's so much that star trek has to offer especially in the original um set of films so if you're new to the thing or you haven't seen it in a while um forget the motion picture jump into star trek to the wrath of khan directed by nicholas meyer who um I believe also has a hand in the one that you're going to recommend, uh, John. But the real thing that I want to point out here is uh, you can jump into Wrath of Khan having very little knowledge of Star Trek Beyond. It's Kirk and Spock and his crew doing adventure stuff. Um, It pretty much reboots the series from a film perspective. It's exciting. It introduces a lot of interesting elements. There are moments when I was a kid seeing this movie that terrified me uh, that still are super effective today in the year of our Lord 2020. Um, It's where Shatner kind of becomes the Shatner that we've really become more familiar with him in as opposed to the Shatner of the 60s of the original series. There's a lot of fun there. Ricardo Montalban um, is is fantastic as the villain. if you've seen the reboots and you've seen in, into darkness, which kind of plays around the same tenets, uh, forget that, that movie it's done much more successfully here in, in Wrath of Khan. So, um, check it out. If you haven't seen it in a while, now's the time to break it out again. So that's my recommendation, John. My recommendation is Star Trek six, the undiscovered country again, directed by Nicholas Mayer. Um, this movie is a, it largely is a the setup for this movie is that there is a a conspiracy to murder and they are trying to that has big political implications in an upcoming peace summit uh, between the Federation and the Klingons and this is largely a commentary about the Cold War ending because it came out in ninety one so there's definitely a lot of you know the Cold War ending vibes to it and the people who are conspiring to do all these murders politically motivated murders are basically trying to prevent peace from happening because they prefer uh when everyone was at war and fighting each other um and they're trying to portray kirk as being sort of this uh warmonger and he's like of course you want to be at war like you couldn't handle peace um and it's just it's a fantastic movie. Like I, I think that it's probably not quite as tight as Wrath of Khan, but it is people just sort of having an enormous amount of fun. Uh, it's really great. And Christopher Plummer as the villain is like 
I would say he is only just second to Khan as far as all-time villains go in Star Trek. He is, he he's he's he just quotes Shakespeare. He just yells Shakespeare lines, and it's great. Like it's uh, his performance alone just makes the whole thing worth watching. Um, but yeah, that's uh, that's gonna be my recommendation uh, for tonight, and I think that wraps it up for us. So I think I hope- it does. Well, thanks so much for for hanging out uh, once again, talking about some movies that I have deep association uh, with, and I hope you had yourself a good time. I got to say, of of all the episodes we've done, um, a lot of the movies that we've watched, for the most part, have things that I've known and loved, or and was ready to recommend. So, w- when you said Star Trek, it was a great opportunity for me to kind of jump into films that I haven't seen for a while, and if 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 if, if you guys listening to this the i think it's a dozen who are listening to this at this point john when we check the numbers but for the dozen of you who are listening to this if you take anything away from it um i i don't know what your thoughts are on the star trek versus star wars kind of ridiculous nerd debacle but man there's there are ideas and there are concepts at play within star trek that are really interesting and are really fun to see from a film perspective. How do you address um, issues of the environment? How do you in, uh, address the issues of the foibles of mankind in a in a blockbuster science fiction film that you know the first form of, the first thought of any film is to make as much money as possible. So how do you inject these lofty concepts into this? kind of blockbuster formula especially something that came from television um both both of these films to varying degrees succeed in that goal and i i can't recommend going back and revisiting these um star trek 4 in particular john's pick is just it's a wonder of a movie the humor holds up today just as well as it did back in 1986 87 so and comedy comedy doesn't (laughs) always age well either yeah no it doesn't it ages terribly sometimes, and this is really timeless. They really key into. Uh, there's a reason why um, Nimoy went on to do Through Men and a Baby after this. Uh, the, the 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 tenets of comedy, the way that the people interact and, and the way that family interacts, is largely the same between films, and and you can definitely see a through line. It, it it's a great 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 film. Definitely check it out. Yeah, I. Uh... Yeah, thank yeah, thanks so much to to anyone who's listening and uh you can follow us on the internet if you like or don't. You can subscribe, rate or do something or don't, you know. I just like talking movies with my friends. So, thanks again for indulging me and uh we'll catch you guys next time. Thank you. Thank you.